Amen. Praise the Lord for that. Our orchestra is tuning up for their recording. We got the choir recorded for the CD. They'll be, they'll be, uh, we'll be introducing to the church on our 20th anniversary next year. And the, the orchestra is getting ready for, for that. So you pray for them. I think their dates are somewhere around the second week of July for that. So be much in prayer for that. Let's stand and take our Bibles this morning. Joshua chapter 3. Excuse me, Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4, so glad to have you here this morning, and if you're a first-time guest and visitor, welcome to Heritage Baptist Church. We have a lot of our folks out on vacation for this weekend, so travel safely, and some are watching by live stream. We just want to be a blessing to you today. Joshua chapter 4, members, look around you. If someone next to you doesn't have a Bible, would you be kind enough to share your Bible with them and make sure they're in their place? And uh, we're just going to have a wonderful time to study this, this morning. Tonight, we're going to have a great study in the Word of God that's going to take us in 2 Samuel 15, and we're going to look at some corresponding psalms that go with that. And in 2 Samuel 15 through 18, we have the story of the Absalom's rebellion against David. And it's interesting, there are 26 psalms that David wrote during that, that period of time. And they're kind of interesting as we study them to catch the heart of David and, catch, and kind of help remind us that sometimes we go through circumstances like that and how the Lord is very gracious. And one of those key psalms is Psalm 62, and we'll be looking at that a little bit tonight, and some reflections that Solomon gives us in Proverbs 17, which I believe kind of lay the, the or kind of just an afterthought as to what his brother Absalom did to his father David there. So you come tonight for a great Bible study to help build you up in the Word of God and encourage you. Uh, Joshua chapter Chapter 4, go with me to verse 17. Say amen if you're there. I know it's a holiday. We're in holiday mood and we're ready to go do whatever. Amen. And uh, we're still in church today. It's still about the worship of God. Joshua chapter 4, verse 17. Follow as I read, please. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come ye up out of Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord were come up out of the midst of Jordan... And the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up unto the dry lamb, that the waters of Jordan returned unto their place and flowed over all his banks as they did before. And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over the Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over. That all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty. That you might for, uh, that you might fear the Lord your God forever. I call your attention to two verses this morning. I kind of set the groundwork this, for our message today. It's a question found in verse 6, and it's a question that's found here over in verse 21. The Lord told Joshua, when you're finished, Everyone's finished passing over the Jordan. He calls it, he describes it as having clean passed over. When the last person goes over, the priest will follow. 
After the priest follows, he says, I want you to notice you're to take some stones. You're to prepare 12 men. They're going to take some stones. And these 12 stones are going to be carried. They're going to hoist them on their shoulders. And they're going to walk across. And they're going to lay them there on the, on the other side of the Jordan that's called the eastern side of Jericho. It's east of Jericho, but west from where they were at. And those stones would be laid there as a memorial. He says, the day will come, your children are going to ask this question. What mean these stones? What does it all mean? Is there some significance behind that? And he gives us the answer in verses 23 and 24. But this morning, we want to kind of focus our thoughts today on this beautiful passage of Scripture in Joshua chapter 4. And seeing God as he works through means that are beyond us. That there's some significance to everything God does. And we want to look at these stones this morning and pray that God will do something great in your heart, in my heart, that can make a difference for the Bay Area and for the world at large. The question that was asked is, what mean these stones? Father, today we assemble here at Heritage Baptist Church, first and foremost, to give you the glory and the praise. Father, we give thanks to you because you are God. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. We give thanks to you, Lord. As the psalmist said, he said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. He said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Lord, who forgiveth all our our iniquities and healeth all our diseases. And today we come... Perhaps some who are just elated and excited about things that have happened this week. Others, perhaps, uh, maybe carrying some burdens and heaviness in their hearts. Whatever we may be at in life today, we need a word from you. We need just to see this passage of Scripture as to speaking to every heart, to every life, to every circumstance, to every situation. And I pray this morning, if we're seasoned Christians, we've been around the Christian faith for a long time, help us that this passage of Scripture, you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. For those of us who are new to the faith and those just growing in the faith, I pray that this will help us to take a step up in our faith. And for all of us, dear Lord, perhaps you're going, who are carrying burdens and weights and difficulties, I pray that we'd see how God meets our needs and burdens are lifted at Calvary. And perhaps for some here today who do not know your son Jesus Christ as Savior, that this service would be the place and time that they would be born again into the family of God. Father, on this Memorial Day weekend, meet with us, touch our lives, bless us, build us up in the word of your grace. We pray for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Today is Memorial Day, and as many of us know that tomorrow, actually today, this weekend is Memorial, tomorrow is Memorial Day, but this weekend is Memorial Day weekend. And as many of you know that Memorial Day was set aside by our U.S. government to remember all those who gave their lives fighting for the liberties and freedom of America, something that we should never take very lightly. And there were, there were many, many wars that the United States was involved in. And out of all those wars, between 1.1 and 1.2 million Americans gave their lives in those wars. The largest number of casualties, of course, happened during the Civil War, a war between the North and the South, with close to 500,000 uh, men lost their lives. In World War II, 405,000 lost their lives. 
In the Vietnam War, 90,000 lost their lives. And of course, today or all across America, tomorrow, memorials and flags will be flying and memorials will be set up for those who lost a loved one. And as those of us here in this congregation, we should remind ourselves that someone died defending our country and someone died for the sake of freedom. And we don't want to forget that today. And if you know someone or you're related to someone that gave their life in the war, I just want to thank you today for having a loved one like that. Over in the Philippines earlier this year, there's a, we were over there and, and there, and we give a tour every year to a U.S. military cemetery where many fought on the shores of there on, on the Philippines during World War II and gave their lives there. And there are many Americans that, whose lives, whose bodies are buried over there. There's a memorial there. And we're just thankful for that. Today we're looking at a different memorial. We're looking at a memorial that was significant in the history of Israel. A memorial that testified to God's power. It testified to the great hand of God. It testified that God is a living God. It was a testimony to the fact that God was ready to take Israel to a whole new level and their and their and their spiritual experience and their lives and we want to spend some time looking at that we want to look at that question that's found in verse 6 and verse 21 when when moses when joshua told the children of israel one day your children are going to ask the question what mean these stones and you know everything we do here at heritage baptist church has some meaning it has some it has some significance to it because as we think about the future and the young people growing up one of these days they're if they haven't already they're going to ask somebody here they're going to ask a sponsor they're going to ask a a, a pastoral staff member. They're going to ask the Sunday school teacher. They're going to ask their parents. They're going to ask someone older than them who has some experience in church. What mean these stones? Tell me about the history of the church. Tell us about what's going on there. And we want to always be able to testify that it was God who led us across the way. And it was God who worked in our lives. And it was God who did something great. And I hope this morning while you're listening to the message that you'll be thinking about the fact that if you're saved, no Jesus Christ is Savior, that you realize you had nothing to do with the saving. God had everything to do with the saving. Amen. You have nothing to do with your eternal security. God has everything to do with your eternal security. And as we consider that this morning, we want to look at that question. What mean ye these stones? First of all, this morning, of the things I want you to see, I want us to go back and revisit what happened last week. I want us to, first of all, revisit the unfailing miracle. Everything in chapter 3 and 4 deal with the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River. Now, the Red Sea crossing, which was 40 years before that, somehow captures our attention more than the Jordan River. But this was significant in the life of the children of Israel. Remember I said last week, that the crossing of the Red Sea that occurred back 40 years before, led by Moses, the crossing of the Red Sea is a picture of our salvation experience. The crossing of the Jordan, of which we're looking at in chapters 3 and 4, is a picture of the life of sanctification. It's the starting point of the Christian life. It's talking about what do we do next and what's next in, in, in terms of what we do as a Christian. We want to revisit this unfailing miracle just for a few minutes today because I believe there's still some, there's some hidden gems and some, some very great scriptural truths that we want to look at this morning that will help you and I through the next week or perhaps the next several months here. First of all, let's go back. As we look at this miracle, let's look at the surrounding perspective. Here's the situation. The children of Israel, Moses has died. Children of Israel now have a new leader. Joshua's the new leader. We find in chapter 3, verse 1, Joshua's led them now from out of the area called Shittim, which is named after the Acacia Woods. He's led them now to the banks and the shoreline of the Jordan River. It is harvest time. It is the time when the rivers are, the river is overflowing. It is a time when the great snow melt is happening from out on Mount Hermon, the great mountains. The snow caps are melting. And as the snow caps are melting, water is flowing and finding its way down 
on a pathway. And from those pathways, the water is finding its way into the rivers and feeding the rivers. And as it's doing so, there's much, much snow that's melting. And there's much, much water that's coming down. And the Jordan River, which normal at normal times would probably be 90 feet across widthwise and would probably not be more than maybe five or six feet deep in its deepest part, now is in a total different situation. Now we're looking at a situation, instead of being 90 feet across from east to west or west to east, we're seeing a, a, a river that as much as a mile in distance width across. So the, if you can imagine the amount of water that's flowing down, it's an immense amount of water that's flowing down. The water's flowing from north to south. It's coming down from the mountain ranges of Mount Hermon, flowing all the way through that Jordan River, all the way down to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is fed from those waters there. And so we find these raging waters. We find these, these insurpassable situations. And we look at the situation... And we see the water is murky. Trees are being uprooted as the waters are raging down. If you are a whitewater raptor, you'd probably consider this a level five or, or higher. It's just a very dangerous situation. And here are the children of Israel, two and a half to three million of them, are led by Jordan there, uh, Joshua, down to the banks of Jordan. They've camped there for three days. As we get to chapter three, they're in that third day. They're entering that third day there. And on for three days, they've heard the roaring of the river coming down. They've seen the water coming down in great speed. They've seen the rapids come down. They, they see this, this long width of about a mile wide that looks impossible to cross. And they're imagining in their mind, there's no way we can walk across them. There's no way we can swim across stream there. There's no way we can get a vessel to cross that. They're looking at it in their minds. They're thinking about, well, maybe we should wait till the waters recede. And maybe we should camp here for about three or four months until the waters get back to their normal range and we can cross over without any problem. And they're looking at their perspective. And this is the mindset of every every Jew. They're looking at it wondering, I wonder what God's going to do here. I wonder what Joshua wants us to do. Their perspective is it's not possible that we can make this. It's not possible that we can get across. It's too powerful for us to look at that. It's too powerful for us to get over there. And that's how a lot of us look at the Christian life. Perhaps you're at a place of Christian life Maybe you've had a setback. Maybe you've got a problem. Maybe you come out of a difficult family situation. Maybe you come out of a dysfunctional situation. And you're looking at the Christian life and you think this. It's too hard to have a victorious Christian life. It's too hard to have victory over temptation. It's too hard to break a bad habit. It's too hard to trust God for my problems and my circumstances. It's too hard to pray and read the Bible. It's too hard to live a victorious Christian life. We look at the surrounding perspective and our thought is it's too hard to do this. It's too hard to get up on Sunday mornings to come to church. It's too hard. I get settled into my ways on Sunday afternoon and it's too hard for me to get out of my couch or get out of my comfort zone to come back to church on Sunday night. I mean, re- the reality is a lot of us look at our perspective, our perspective as we look at the Christian life and we look at it like these Israelites. We say it's too difficult for us to look at these things here. But where we see the surrounding perspective, notice here in chapter three and four, we see the supernatural power. Go back to chapter three and verse seven as Joshua has been told by God exactly what the command is and that they're going to cross the Jordan River and how they're going to cross it. Notice Josh in chapter 3 verse 7 makes a remarkable statement to them. I pray a statement that will embed itself in your mind. And he said, God speaks to Josh and he said to him in verse 7, which he would repeat to the children of Israel, this day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of, of, of Israel. And he says that they may know that I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. And then he goes down a little bit further. 
And he says in verse 10, Hereby you shall know that the living God is among you, and that He will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. He's telling him, listen, you're going to make it across here. I'm going to get you across this Jordan River. It doesn't matter that it was formerly 90 feet in width and now a mile long in width. It doesn't matter that it used to be 5 feet in depth, but now it's way over your head. It doesn't matter about that. He says the living God is among you. He says, you're going to make it across and it's not going to be by your power. It's not going to be by your ability. It's going to be by the supernatural power of God. Because getting across there is not something that you want to explain humanly. It's something that you want to be able to explain spiritually there. And so we notice here, the power of God is at work in chapters 3 and 4. It's God's power that's going to get them across. First of all, notice is a review. We see the unfailing presence. I call this first point, the unfailing miracle. You know something that's great about God today? God never fails. Amen. God can do anything, anything, anything but fail. God can do anything, anything but fail. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. He can save. He can keep. He can cleanse any will. I remind you today, God can do anything but fail this morning. And maybe you're at a place where your faith feels like it's so small. And you're at a place where you think that your faith cannot grow. And you think that you're at a place where you're, that, that God is not alive and God is small. May I encourage you this morning to take the blinders off your eyes and the unbelief off your heart and the shackles that are holding you down and decide today that you know what God is living and God is alive and he's the one that rolled the stone away and Jesus came out the tomb and he's the God of all creation God can do anything but fail this morning and I remind you today of his unfailing presence and it wasn't about following Joshua because it wasn't Joshua that was in the lead and it wasn't following the priests and the Levites it was the fact that God said the Levites are going to carry the ark of the covenant and that ark of the covenant represented first of all the unfailing presence of God. It represented the fact that God would lead them across the way. That 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 Ark of the Covenant, as we saw last week, which had the uh, which had the two tablets of stone where the Ten Commandments were written, and the golden pot that had manna in it, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the enclosure was made out of gold, and over it was a and then covered by wood, and then if you would, there was a golden uh, uh, lid over it, and then there were cherubims that were covering it, and it was a symbol of the work of God in salvation that God does the saving in life, and it was po- pointing to them that. Everywhere the ark went, it represented the holy presence of God. And here's what God was saying. God's presence will lead you. Brother and sister in Christ this morning, friend here today, may I remind you today, you and I are not going to make it without the presence of God. We've got to have God's hand on our life. We've got to have God's presence in what we do. And from the very outset, as this church started, we've claimed one thing. We need God's presence and we need God's hand upon our life. We need God to work in your life and my life. We see the unfailing presence of God where the ark went, those priests, as they touched the water and I I'm sure that they were a little fearful. Four priests, four Levites holding that ark. The Bible says they were to walk into that water. And as they did so, you can imagine the waters are rushing. And they had to feel the coolness of the water. And they had to feel the rushing of the water. And they had to feel the water perhaps not just going over their feet, but perhaps where they had to stand, even coming up to their ankles. And they're feeling the rising of the water. And maybe just for a moment, those priests, as they're hoisting and holding the very presence of God in that ark, represented by that ark, there they're probably thinking, man, without God, there's no way we can make it there. And I remind you today, 
no matter where you go in life, no matter what you do in life, you need God's presence to go with you and before you. And it would be folly for Joshua and the children of Israel to cross that Jordan River without the presence of God. Remind you today, when the presence of God is, God makes a way where there is no way. And where the presence of God is, God takes the impossible and makes it possible. And where the presence of God is, we see God at work where you and I cannot work. We see the unfailing presence leading the way. But notice, as we get to chapter 4, we see the unfailing, not the, the unfailing performance of God. Those priests touched the water. Remember that? They get in the water. And something that most of that generation never seen before. The water started to recede. And the water started to recede north and south. Northwards all the way up to the city of Zaratan. We read about in chapter 3. It came, the water's coming down, which, which humanly is not possible. Geologically and every other way, scientifically is not possible. The water's receding backwards. I mean, waters are supposed to be coming down from the mountain and they're coming down from Mount Hermon all the way down into the Jordan River and making its way down the Dead Sea. And on the northwards, the water's receding, going all the way back up. And the Bible describes it, it stood up as a heap, like a big wall by the city of Zaratam. That's about 15 miles upstream. And then we read later on that downstream about ten, they were about 10 where they were at there at Jordan, where they were in camp. They were about 10 miles away from the Dead Sea and the waters went receded southwards towards the towards the Dead Sea. And they stood up as a heap. Can you imagine the sight here? Can you imagine the sight that every Jew saw? They saw the waters receding 15 miles one direction and they saw it receding 10 miles the other direction. And they're beholding this and the priests as they're standing there, what was wet and soggy and muddy and water flowing over their feet is now dry as the floor that you're standing on right now. It was a dry bed and they looked at that and now God gave the command that every Jew was to make their way across. As they made their way across, every Jew would put their foot out and they thought, wow, I wonder if this is soggy. And it was a dry riverbed they walked across and if you can imagine two and a half to three million jews walking across there can you imagine if it's a mile wide i don't know about you but for me a fast walk i think i could do a fast walk in maybe 13 15 minutes if i walk really fast a normal pace maybe about 20 22 minutes can you imagine that great multitude of jews trying to make their way across it took an entire day maybe just a little bit more than a day for every jew to make it across and during that time god was holding back the water northwards as a heap on this end and god was holding back the waters southwards on this end and they looked at that and every Jew that made it across they would look they would make it across walking there and gaining confidence as they meet each step going across finally they'd get on the other side the western shore bank looking at the city of Jericho and then they'd look back and they'd watch their brethren coming this way and watching people come and people looking and those early people that those people that early in the, 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 the start of it got to see all this they're, remark- they're thinking in their mind what a remarkable miracle we're, relive- we're reliving something that, that we want to tell our children about and we're living something that is it's unexplainable. Waters northwards and waters southwards are formed like a big wall heap. And all, the only way we can explain it is the unfailing performance of God. That God was in the midst of all this. And notice, if you would, something very interesting. Notice uh, Joshua chapter 3, verse 17, and Joshua chapter 4, verse 7. Would you notice that, please? This is a great description that God gives of this. As we look at these waters and the Jews are crossing, the Bible says, And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst oh, over, dry, uh, oh, over on, on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over. It says that. And then notice verse 16, That the waters which came down from above and rose upon a heap very far from the city of Adam, that is beside Zaratan, and those that came down towards the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, they failed. And notice this phrase, they were cut off. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. 
Then you shall answer them that the waters of Jordan, and underline that phrase, were cut off. Before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and when it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be for memorial unto the children of Israel forever and ever. Hey, that's a remarkable statement there, cut off. The Jordan River, as I mentioned last week, is a picture of death. For anybody to even contemplate crossing over those raging rapids of waters from the great snowmelt coming down from Mount Hermon will only lead to death. It was impossible. And the word cut off, you do your word studying the Bible, the word cut off also means death. And as they're crossing, I remind you today, there was the death of death, amen? There was the death of death. And just like when Jesus rose again from the dead, he said, there's the death of death. He's not here, he's risen from the grave, amen? He cut it off. And the waters were cut off, and instead of seeing death and, and morbidity, listen, they saw life, and they saw immortality, and they saw God being able to do things. Listen, we see the unfailing performance of God in their situation. May I remind you today, as we look at Joshua 4, verse 23, it says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you, until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, when He dried up, which He dried up before us, until we were gone over. Moses is Joshua would say this, listen, there was a time I remember it vividly in my mind, and Caleb remembers in his mind, when God cut off the Red Sea, and he made it, he made the impossible possible, and the impassable passable, and he made a way for us where there was no way, and he gave a miracle where it's, where all we needed was a miracle and God made a way, and he says God did it again for us here at the river in Jordan, the Lord your God was among you, the Lord your God dried up that river bed, and what he was saying there is that everything about this crossing required a supernatural power And everything you and I need to succeed in the Christian life requires God's supernatural power. Without God, we can do nothing. Without God, it's not possible. Let me walk you through some things this morning that will help you if you'll turn to these passages of Scripture. Notice in Hebrews 13, verses 20-21. In Hebrews 13, verses 20-21, listen to me this morning. Victory in the Christian life is not possible without the Lord. We were having a time of prayer, and one of our men was praying. He said, this morning, he said, Lord, thank you that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And then I reminded our men after we had prayer, I said, that's a great verse, but let us not forget the first part of that. You are of God, little children. Because victory is not possible unless you are of God, little children. Victory is not possible until you are one of His and you have His presence in your life there. And I remind you today as you look at Hebrews 13, verses 20-21. Notice those verses. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Notice verse 21. Make you perfect and every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. When Paul wrote those words to those Hebrew believers, they had gotten to the place where they just kind of threw up their hands and said, what's to use? It's too hard. I can't do it in my strength. I can't do it in my power. And brother and sister Christ, they're exactly right. It's too hard. You and I cannot do it in our strength. And you and I cannot do it in our power. But with God working in us, all things are possible to him that believeth. And notice in verse 21, he'll make us perfect in every good work. Hey, listen, step out by faith and just try, just get God's presence in your life. 
life and his power in your life. And watch, he makes he makes you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well pleasing in his sight. I want to encourage you this morning. It is possible to have victory in the Christian life, but only through the Lord. And maybe you're struggling and maybe you're having difficulty and maybe you've got some sin that's holding you down and maybe some weight is holding you down. I want to encourage you this morning. Claim the victory that you have in Jesus Christ. He can make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Don't be afraid to go forth. Don't be afraid to cross that Jordan River. Don't be afraid to trust the presence of God. Don't be afraid to know that God is with you through all this. We have victory through the Lord. Now notice something else. We don't have the victory in the Christian victory in the Christian life is not possible without the Lord. But notice something else. Victory over temptation is not possible without the Lord. Did you have temptation this week? You having temptations right now? We all have temptations. But if you go to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, may I encourage you this morning? Victory over temptation is not possible without the Lord. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But notice this, God is faithful. How many glad this morning? God is faithful. Amen? God is faithful. Say that with me this morning. God is faithful. Notice the rest of it. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Victory over temptation is not possible without the Lord. God is faithful. Who will make a way for you and I to escape. Notice something else. Victory in the Christian life is not possible without the Lord. And victory over temptation is not possible without the Lord. But notice this this morning. Answers to prayer are not possible without the Lord. I mean, have you ever come to this theological conclusion when you pray to God, you're not praying to yourself? Amen? You ever come to this theological conclusion when you're praying to God, you're asking the God of creation, the God of heaven and earth, to interact, intervene for you, to do something that you cannot do? And notice what we're told in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. And that's a great promise to remind you and I that sometimes as we pray, we may be limited in our words and we may be limited in our thinking and we may be limited in our description. But the Bible says God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. I was listening to Brother Denny this morning who was teaching the adult combined adult Bible classes and he was talking about difficulties we have in the Christian life and one of those things he was describing some symptoms of that and he said he was talking about inarticulate speech and i was listening to that and i told somebody next to me i said i think he's criticizing my preaching but I, he's trying to hide that amen inarticulate speech there and i said but sometimes that's how we feel about about our, our praying we feel like it's an inarticulate speech and we're really not sure what to say and i don't know about you sometimes i feel like a mess i'm praying and pouring my heart to god then i think for a minute i said what did i just ask god to do for me did i ask him to help me or did i just just kind of ramble around there but i'm reminded ephesians 3 20 the bible says god is able to do Exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Hey, listen, he exceeds what we ask and he exceeds our expectations. But I'm reminded today, answers to prayer can only happen when we ask God for help. One of our, one of our, our, our believers here in church, one of our, our, our uh, one of the brethren here in church is going through a health difficulty and, uh, they, they're just having just really, really, it's been a very trying circumstance from the last few, uh, few weeks here. And this morning I was watching them as they came into the new, uh, new members class. They're walking in and I helped them carry some things. I said, how are you feeling this week? And the, and the, our member said this. They said, Pastor, you won't believe this, but the last three days I've had, I've had no difficulties. It's been great. I haven't had any pain, haven't had any discomfort. I've been able to get a good night's sleep. He said, for weeks it's been difficult, but I feel like the last three days I've just gotten victory over this. And I said, you know what? We agreed one thing. It's an answer to prayer. Answer to prayer. 
prayer, as we enter to the presence of God, we come at His presence, we have to come boldly. We pray boldly. We must pray big. We must pray biblically. We must pray out of the box. Now to Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. I'm saying this morning, answers to prayer are not possible without the Lord. But notice something else. Your eternal security and my eternal security, our assurance of knowing we're going to heaven is not possible without the Lord. Would you notice 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5? I said earlier that God called our attention, Joshua 3.16 and Joshua 4.7, to the words, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. We see a picture of the death of death. You might be somebody here in this auditorium as we look at 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. Your heart of hearts, you might be struggling with this question. How do I know for sure I'm saved? I did Asked Jesus Christ to be my Savior. I told the Lord I was a sinner. And I believed that Christ died for my sins and rose again from the dead. But I have this uncertainty in my heart. I want to be certain I'm saved. And I want to give you these verses so that you might know for certain that you're saved. Because the saving and the keeping is not dependent upon you or me. The saving and the keeping is totally dependent upon God who does the saving and the keeping. And the Bible says in 1 Peter 1 verses 3 to 5, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled, that Fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When you read all that, notice all these verses, what those verses are saying. The saving and the keeping is God's responsibility. Verse 5 says, we are kept by the power of God. That's what we're talking about, this unfailing performance. We're talking about the supernatural power of God. We're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When you read and work your way through all of First Peter, Peter is giving reminder after reminder after reminder, chapter 1 of First Peter, of our salvation, that our salvation is from God, and the keeping of our salvation is from God. God is the one who does the saving, and God is the one who does the keeping. And maybe this morning you, you're saved, but deep down in your heart of hearts, you've had a fear about that assurance of salvation. May I encourage you this morning, Jesus Christ does the saving keeping. One of the ladies that got baptized yesterday, we spent some time the other day with her just going over that, and she said, you know, I never, I really just never really knew for sure whether I was saved or not. Thank you for taking me through the scriptures, and thank you for help me understand today that the saving and the keeping is by the Lord and not by me. And I remind you today, maybe you're thinking you're responsible for the saving or there's something you've got to do. There's nothing you've got to do. It was already done when Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. And so this morning we see the unfailing miracle. You're not going to make it across without God's help. And God wants you to get on the other side. He doesn't want you standing there on the, on the eastern shore of the Jordan wondering if you're going to make it across. Listen, if you're saved and you know Jesus' day, it's time to cross over. It's time to trust in the power of God to lead you across the way and to trust God that He will make a way where there is no way. And God will give you the power where there is no power. And God will give you enablement where you need enablement. You just trust God to get you across the other side. And as you get on the other side, realize today that it was the presence of God that led you there. And it's God who does the leading. And it's, the God, it's God who does the keeping who sustains you and me we see the unfailing miracle but notice secondly very quickly would you notice the unforgettable memorial in our passage of scripture what a remarkable passage here in chapter 4 
God tells Joshua, now here's what you're going to do. After everybody's crossed over, you're, 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 before they cross over, I want you to take 12 men. One man representing someone of leadership prominence in the nation of Israel. And each man representing one of the tribes of Israel. And each of those men, you're going to instruct them to pick up a rock inside the midst of the Jordan. You're going to pick up these stones, and they're going to be large enough stones that are going to hoist on their shoulder. By the way, I'm just kind of thankful that as we read this, that I imagine that the Jordan River was a very rocky bed because it was, it was, it was, it was a river created by the overflowing of, of the waters from the, the melting of the snow caps. And you can imagine people would have stubbed their toe on those rocks and so forth there. And I'm just kind of glad God, God made a way, just kind of a comforting thought. God makes a way so that you don't even stub your toe. Amen? That's kind of a blessing there. Amen? And so God tells him, I want you to get these 12, 12 men. Each one's going to get a stone and they're going to hoist these stones on their shoulder and they're going to carry it on their shoulder. And these men are going to walk. They're going to go back, get a stone and they're going to make their way across. And as they get to the western side of the bank, which is east of Jericho, those men are going to put it down. They're going to lay it down at the place where they're at. So let's look at the scripture and what the scriptures have to say about that. Notice verse eight. He said in verse seven, he's uh, actually go to verse five and he said, uh, Joshua said unto them, uh, pass over this, the, the ark of the Lord your God. He's giving the instructions to these twelve men. He says, pass over the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take of every man you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye these by these stones, that ye shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones, notice, shall be for memorial unto the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of Jordan, as the Lord spake unto Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. Now I want you to understand the significance now. Before the cross in the Jordan, for three night, days and nights, the children of Israel encamped there on the, on the eastern side. They're listening to the waters. They're seeing this river flowing. They're seeing the raging rapids. And their minds are looking at the surrounding situation, thinking it's not possible. God makes a way. God opens it up. Now they're making their way across. Every one of those Jews made it across. And when the very last person made it there, then the priests were supposed to follow with the ark of God. And as they did so, the waters would, 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 would go back to their normal state. But before all that happened, God told Joshua, you need to choose out 12 men. He told him that in chapter 3, repeats it back in chapter 4. He says, you need to take 12 men who pick up stones out of that, out of that, out of that dry riverbed. They're going to hoist it upon their shoulders. You have to imagine, these had to be very, very big stones that they carried. Significant stones that people would see. Significant enough that the children would ask the question, what mean ye these stones? They would carry these stones across, and as they made their way there to the, to the, to the western shore, east of Jericho, they'd lay those stones, I'll put it up here so you can see, they'd lay those stones down, 12 massive stones carried by 12 men, which they carried for maybe as much as a mile a mile in a distance, they make it there, and they put them down there, and he says in verse 8, he says, I want you to put them down there, and, uh, and, and they're gonna, you're going to put them in the place where, where the people are lodging, and you're going to lay them there. And then something else would happen. They would lay the stones there as a memorial, he said there. It's, it's a memorial. They're to remember this, because they're going to get asked a question, what mean these stones? And then Joshua, notice in verse 9, we forget about this sometimes. Joshua had 
have to go back there too. And notice in verse 9, Joshua goes back and he's to get 12 stones. Now it's Joshua by himself. He gets 12 stones and he go back. He goes back to the eastern shore where the priests were standing, holding the ark of the Lord where the presence of God was. And he takes the 12 stones he's picked up. And I just could imagine they're 12 big stones. So he had to do it 12 times. He picked up a stone and brought it back one. And then he picked up another stone and he brought back stone number two. And he did this 12 times. And he laid those 12 stones back at the place where the priests were formerly standing. The place when the priests walked to the riverbed. And as they did so, the water's flowing over their feet. Water's rising up to their ankles. As they did so, the water started to recede. And he said, God told him, I want you to put 12 stones right there at the place where you entered this place. And I want you to have 12 stones at the place where you exited that place. Now, can you imagine the scene for just a minute? 12 massive stones at the front end and at the back end. At the beginning and at the end. 12 sets of stones on both ends as a reminder. Notice verse 9. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests which bear the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there unto this day. Twelve stones were set up on the west side and on the east side. And most significant was those stones that were set up on that western side as they faced the city of Jericho. Those twelve stones were to be a forever perpetual memorial that God cut the Jordan River open. He made it possible for them to cross that they said, your children, which you didn't have a chance to explain them what happened, they're going to ask, what do these stones mean? He said, I want people who come back to these shorelines to see those stones, the significance of those those stones as a memorial, as a reminder that God made a way where there was no way. That God made possible what was not possible. God gave them a memorial. It was a reminder to them that it was something that would be unforgettable. Something that would be etched in their hearts and minds. They would not forget. Brother and sister Christ, what a great, great sermon truth there. It's a sermon truth that there's some things about the Christian life and some things about living for God that we should always keep in remembrance. Some things that we should always keep foremost in our memory that we revisit over and over and over again. May I suggest you just four this morning, four things that we should remember for the Lord. First of all, we should remember the Lord and His salvation. Aren't you glad about that this morning? Amen. We should remember the Lord and His salvation. And God gives us a methodology for that. Notice in 1 Corinthians 11, if you'll turn there, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26, the Lord gave us the memorial called the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. Now, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, is a was a memorial or an ordinance of the local New Testament church. The Lord gave that to us so that we would not let our hearts get crusty and hardened and callous about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Now, notice 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul was speaking to the church, at Corinth, which had let some things slip, he said this to them in verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And notice this next phrase, This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Brother and sister Christ, you look up here, one of the great memorials that God gave us that we're to continue in this New Testament church age. One of the great memorials, which is an ordinance of the local church. And it's a requirement for every New Testament church member is to take of the Lord's table. The Lord's table consists of two very simple elements that are pictures of Jesus Christ. First of all, there's the element of the unleavened bread. The bread speaks to us about the sinless life of Jesus Christ. Leaven, if you would, is yeast 
or an element that's added, an additive that's given to, to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to wheat to make it ferment and to, to make it rise. As you know, when you add that additive to it or yeast to it, over time, if it's left out at room temperature, it will start to spoil. Leaven in the Bible or yeast, leaven is always a picture of sin. You read about that in the book, in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus. You read about that over in 1 Corinthians 5. It is always a picture of sin. If Jesus, if Jesus had sin in his life, then he could not have been the son of God that could have satisfied God's demands and died for your sins and mine. But praise the Lord, Jesus Christ had no sin because he was born of, a, it was a virgin birth. And we thank the Lord that Jesus Christ is a sinless savior who died for your sins and mine. And so it reminds us that, that, that bread is a picture of the body of Jesus Christ. And then the elements, if we call it the fruit of the, 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 of the cup, the cup represents the fruit of the vine. When you read the New Testament correlation, it speaks of it as the, as the fruit of the vine. It was not wine. It was freshly squeezed grape juice that they took. And they partook of it there on that institution of the Lord's table on that night in the upper room. And Paul said, listen, God gave us a memorial that was passed down from Jesus to his apostles, to us as part of the local New Testament church. And he says, you're to take the bread and you're to break it and take heed. He says, remember, this is my body. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And then he said, you're to take the cup in the same manner and you drink it. And this do in remembrance of me. Listen, tonight, this morning, we're to remember the Lord and his sacrifice. Brother and sister in Christ, Jesus died for you and me. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. And I remind you today, Jesus died for your sins and mine. The Bible reminds us over in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, my little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he's the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of all the world. I don't know why today's Christianity is scared of words like propitiation and justification. You look up the word propitiation, it simply means this, that he was the atonement. He was the payment price. He was the just demands for God. He died for your sins and mine. May remind you today, we're to never forget and we're to never get out of our mind or our heart the fact that Jesus died for your sins and mine. Oh, listen, you can get so caught up with this world and you can get so caught up with your job and you can get so caught up with wealth accumulation and you can get just so caught up with trying to get out of debt and you can get just so caught up with just all your problems and difficulties. We, we let our problems and the magnitude of everything around us pressure us and squeeze us. Listen, in the midst of all that, we've got to look unto Jesus who's the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him which endures its contradiction of sin lest ye also be tempted and fall thereby. I remind you this morning, we need to get our eyes on Jesus. We need to remind ourselves every now and then, thank you God for dying for my sins. And thank you Jesus for shedding your blood. And the Bible says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. May we not get to the place we get so hard and we forget what Jesus did for us. Listen, he gave his life for you and me. He gave his all. He shed his blood. He died for you and me. We must always remember that Jesus died for our sins. Remember the Lord. And a sacrifice. I tell you, the best cure for a backslidden heart, and the best cure for unbelief, and the best cure when you get cynical about the faith, and the best cure when you and I kind of get sideways about things, we need to remember the Lord in His death on the cross for you and me. We need to remember the Lord in His, in His salvation, in His sacrifice. But notice, if you notice Deuteronomy 8.18, we must remember the Lord in our stewardship. 
After you save, you have responsibilities. A baby born into a home is not to be cared and treated like a baby for the rest of its life. Baby growing up becomes a child. As a child becomes a young adult and, and assumes responsibilities in the home. Listen, God doesn't want you to stay as a baby Christian for the rest of your life. Amen? I mean, if you can't even name the books of the Bible, you don't even know the names of the books of the Bible, it's time to grow. If all you've done is you've just exercised faith in Christ, but you haven't added to your faith virtue, or to virtue knowledge, or to knowledge temperance in 2 Peter 1, and all those things he talked about, listen, it's time to grow up in the Christian faith, amen? If you can't discern between good and evil and right and wrong, it's time to grow up in the Christian faith. Can I hear an amen? We need to grow up. And part of growing up is realizing we have responsibility. God gives us gifts that they may be used for His glory. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is He that giveth thee power to get wealth. Well, I'm a self-made man. No, you're not. I'm a self-made woman. No, you're not. God gave you the power to get your wealth. Well, I don't believe that. Well, the moment you believe that it has to do with you, not with God. You've gotten to a place where you think that you're bigger than God. Do you know Bill Gates is an, maybe one of the richest men in all the world? Bill Gates is an atheist. They look up and ask the question that every quarter, I wonder what books Bill Gates is reading. I happened to see an article the other day that says the 12 books or 10 books or whatever books that is that, uh, that uh, Bill Gates is recommending that you read for the summer. And I kind of perused over the title of the books and what they're all about. And every one of the books is basically saying, I'm self-made. I got there myself. I don't need to depend upon these things. And I don't need to have these responses. And I need to deny my conscience. And I need to just trust myself. May I remind you this morning, Deuteronomy 18 says, we're, we're to remember the Lord our God, for it is He that give the power to get well that he may establish his covenant which he swore unto thy fathers as it is this day so you say preacher what is the stewardship well stewardship means everything we have that God's given to us he owns it we're just managers he's entrusted that to us to see if we're going to be good stewards and good managers you need to read the parable about the good steward or the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 10 Matthew 25 and the best example I can give you, because of time, I just remind you, for here, here I've, got, I've got two bills here. I've got a $10 bill here. And a $10 bill here, if I was to, uh, if I got compensation of $10, or a gift of $10, or I had an asset that appreciated $10, guess what my stewardship responsibility is? I'm to give 10% of that back to God. Why? Because God owns the first 10%. How many of you know that this morning? Amen. God owns one-tenth. You say, well, I own it. No, you don't. Everything God gives us, He already owns 10% of it. So here's $10. So immediately as a $10, as I get that appreciation or the compensation, I set aside $1 for the Lord. That's called tithing. But that's the starting point. The Bible emphasizes grace giving. I like how all these grace advocates, they talk about, well, pastor, we're not in the law anymore. We're, into, we're out of the law and we're into grace. Well, you know, as I understand the Bible in 2 Corinthians, and I understand the law of grace giving, that means I need to give more than the tenth. So before you go into grace giving, my question is, I'm going to ask you, is are you giving more than the tithe? By the way, grace giving finds its example in Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. Jesus gave all of himself. That's grace giving. That's the greatest example. And so when you us understand this morning, we must remember the Lord in our stewardship. In our stewardship, God requires us to give. And by the way, can I just tell you this? If you understand your Bible, if you read Malachi chapter 3, chapter 3, if you're not giving the tithe, God's going to get it out of you some way. 
Read Malachi chapter 3. I'm just encouraged this morning that be a cheerful giver and be be one who realizes that worship without giving is not real worship to God at all. We must remember the Lord and His sacrifice. We must remember the Lord and His stewardship. But notice, go with me to Hebrews chapter 13 very quickly. In Hebrews chapter 13, notice, we're reminded to remember them, who's the Lord, and those who suffer. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 3, Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in body. Can I encourage you about something this morning? Wednesday night for our members, and I encourage you to come. You don't have to be a member, just come Wednesday night. We give out our, our weekly prayer page. And there's a lot of needs on the prayer page. But foremost among those needs, we have about 125, 130 missionaries, church planners, and mission agencies, Baptists of, of origin that we support. And some of them are suffering. Some of them are in very difficult areas. Some of them are dealing with people that are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm just saying this morning, the Bible reminds us to pause for a minute and remember them. Now, you know what? When he wrote this to the Hebrew believers, they knew of family members. And someone connected to them who accepted Christ as their Savior. And they were being persecuted or even incarcerated for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you and I don't know someone like that personally. And maybe we know somebody uh, indirectly through a third, fourth, or fifth source. But I remind you, the Bible's still right about what it says. We were to remember the Lord and those who suffer. And I remind you today, it doesn't even have to be someone who's suffering for the faith. It could just be someone suffering physically or spiritually because they're having a trial in their Christian life. I was making a list of people that are hospitalized and going through cancer right now in our church. And we've got about 12 to 14 people with very, very serious illnesses and situations. And situations are precluding them from coming out and, and being with people and very discouraging. And it was one this week where we were, they were getting some infusions this week. And as I sat with them just going through all of that and tears were forming in their eyes. And they said, Pastor, this is, there are these treatments I've got right now. If it doesn't work, they're out of options. How would you like to be that person? I'm just saying this morning that God calls upon us to remember the Lord and those who suffer. But notice something else in Hebrews 13. We're to remember the Lord and His sacrifice, and we're to remember the Lord and our stewardship, and we're to remember the Lord and, and those who suffer. But notice Hebrews 13, 7. Remember the Lord and those who are His servants. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 7, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow concerning the end of their conversation. And I think as I think about that, I'm thinking about the fact that the Bible says he took Joshua and he magnified Joshua in the eyes of all the people that day, that they might know that God put his anointing and his approval upon Joshua. But I, I want you to see something significant. I want you to realize that as they made it the other way, everyone realized one thing. It wasn't Joshua that got them there. It was the God of Joshua that got them there. And they realized that Joshua was there as the servant of the Lord, leading the way, providing the way, praying for them, leading them, guiding them, directing them. And all he was saying to them is, remember them that have the rule over you, whose faith follows. And I'm just saying this morning, every now and then, there's a voice that comes alongside of you that whispers to you, well, I don't agree with what the pastor says. And a voice comes alongside you and says, well, this is wrong about what the Bible says. I don't agree with that. And I believe we're in a different dispensation. But I remind you this morning, we're to get our eyes on those who are spiritual leaders that are walking with God and doing the right thing. And the Bible just commands us very simply, whose faith we're to follow. May I encourage you this morning, when I encourage you to pray, follow the faith of your pastor in prayer. 
When I lead you into a faith direction as we, we, we start in our giving, may I encourage you to follow the faith of your preacher in giving. May I encourage you to follow the faith of your preacher in missions. May I encourage you to follow the faith of your preacher in, in, in serving the Lord and reach our community for Christ and winning souls. And in just a couple months, we're going to have our annual missions conference, our 19th annual missions conference. You don't want to miss that conference. We're going to have some great preachers and missionaries being used of God. I'm just saying this morning, we've got to get our eyes and say, well, I don't understand everything that's going on, but that's okay. Get your eyes on them who are leading the way said whose faith you're to follow and aren't you glad this morning a bunch of these people these jews didn't know all what was going down when god talked to joshua but all they had to do is follow his faith and so we see this morning number one the unfailing miracles god can do anything but fail we see number two the unforgettable uh memorial they're established these 12 stones their children would ask one day what mean ye these stones but as we finish this morning i want you to see one last thing we're done do you notice chapter 4, verse 24, and I'm done? The Bible says that all the people of the earth... Uh, let's start verse 23. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which He dried up from before us until we were gone over. Now, that's a great statement there. God gave them victory. He says, listen, God was the one who dried up that river bread so that everyone could go over. And just in my mind still, it's just, just to fathom that two and a half to three million people walked across that. And it could have taken 24 or more hours from the cross. It just blows my mind. But God wasn't finished there. Because you look at verse 24, and verse 24, God says there's a bigger purpose behind this. There's more to it, brother, sister in Christ, than just you getting saved. There's more to it than you being part of a church like Heritage Baptist Church. And he tells in verse 24 something that was to stand out and be in their minds as they got into that, that land of Canaan and started conquering city after city after city, which is a picture of claiming your spiritual inheritance in the Lord. And in verse 24 he said this, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. Notice the first part of verse 24, that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord that is mighty. Now, I want you to picture with me just for a minute what's going on here. <coughs> all these Jews have gotten over the riverbed, and they're on the western shores of the Jordan River. And you just see this mass of people lining up the shores. I mean, three million people lining up the shores there. Josh is there, and then finally the priests follow them. And as the priests follow them, these four men holding this Ark of the Covenant, as soon as the last one made, got his foot across there, the waters came back, and they heard the roaring and the raging of the rapids coming back as it formerly did. The waters that were receding southward came back, and the waters that had receded northwards were coming back, and the raging waters were continuing. And the in the midst of all the noisiness of the waters that were running and the debris that was flowing down the river towards the Dead Sea and the trees that were coming down and the roaring of the rivers and the resuming of the width from 90 feet to about a mile wide. As you can imagine all that, the people were just remarking in their mind, what a great miracle. It's all about us. It's all for us. And God says, no, it's not all about you and it's not all for you for just your purposes. He says that all the people of the earth. Do you notice something this morning as we close? It's not just the unfailing miracle. 
And it's not just the unforgettable memorial. It's also about the fact there's an unfinished mission that we must accomplish for the glory of God. And the unfinished mission is that God wanted those people there in Canaan land, those people that started the city of Jericho, and those people, those, those pagans that were living up there by Mount Hermon that saw the waters receding up that way, and the pagans that lived down, downstream there on southward, 10 miles away, that were watching as the waters receded by the Dead Sea. God was giving those pagan Gentiles, those non-believers, one more opportunity to turn from their idols to serve the living God. Listen, can I tell you something this morning? God loves the world. God loves the world. God loves every sinner for Easter propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of all the world. I remind you this morning that Jesus Christ tasted death for every man. I remind you this morning of for John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He didn't love a piece of the world. He didn't love a segment of the world. He doesn't just love a continent of the world. He just doesn't love a city of the world. Jesus Christ, God our Father, loves the entire world. And so you notice here as they're carrying that ark and they're making the way across, he's saying that there's a mission. He says the mission is this. I still will have, I'm still, as my heart goes out for these people, I'm giving them one more opportunity. You've got to remember where the city of Jericho was. People stood upon, they stood up on top of a wall and most of those places were, were fortified cities where they, where they lived up on top of the walls. And they could see across and they could hear the roaring of the waters. They watched the water stopped. And you can imagine these, these people in Jericho, which already knew about the, about the parting of the Red Sea many years before. They're saying, it happened again. It happened again. And God, through His love, was opening His arms up through His great hand and through His miraculous means of telling these pagan people, these people that are unbelievers, I still love you. By the way, God still loves them now, amen? He says, I still love you and I want you to get saved and I want you to understand my heart for you. Listen, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For God, God wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I'm going to tell you this morning, regardless of what some crazy theologian is going to tell you, that God died for this group or that group. Let me listen. Jesus Christ died for the sins of all the world this morning. And He offers salvation to whosoever will believe on Him. And so God was echoing out to the, all these people across the landscape there. Listen, just one more time. I just want you to know, it was the hand of the Lord that did this. It was the mighty hand of God that made this possible. I'm offering to you the wonderful free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Listen, Romans 5, 8 and 9. But God commended His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. You know what's here? An unfaltering, an unfinished mission. God was telling Israel, it's not about you only. He says, there's a world out there that's dying that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heritage Baptist Church, be thankful you're saved today. Amen? Amen. But be thankful today that you're saved for a purpose. And the purpose is, the purpose is, we're a gospel-preaching church. We're church concerned for the winning of souls of lost people. That God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Fritz Kreisler was a very noted violinist. In Europe, everyone paid exorbitant prices to hear Fritz Kreisler take that violin and make it come alive. Fritz Kreisler was also known as a man that Gave much of his wealth away. He was a very generous man, a very charitable man. 
his travels in one European city, he came across a very exquisite violin. He saw the woodwork and the strings. And only as a violinist could know he could take the violin and he would take the violin and he would Oh, that's a good sound. He asked the dealer who had his possession, he says, Could sir, could you tell me how much do you want for the violin? He gave Fritz Kreiser the price. Fritz Kreiser said, I don't have that kind of money. But if you'll hold it for a couple months, I'll raise the money and get it. And Fritz Kreiser went out. It wasn't difficult for him to get a concert to play anywhere. And every concert he went to, he'd play. And he'd get standing ovation after standing ovation after standing ovation. And he'd raise the money. And finally, after a couple months, he raised the money and he did so. He says, man, I'm going to go back and get that, get that violin that's got exquisite, this exquisite wood and has a wonderful sound and all of that. And he went there to find the dealer. And he says, sir, I came back with the money to buy that violin. The man said, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Kreiser. I sold the violin to a dealer. A collector, excuse me. And first, Chrysler was crushed in his spirit because of all the violins that he had in his possession. That one was the one he wanted more than anything else. He said, who is the collector? And the dealer said, hey, why, this, this is it. He says, I know who this man is. He, Can you tell me his address? And back in those days, they didn't have privacy laws. Aren't you glad you have privacy laws today, man? He said, yeah, I'll give you his address. So he gave him his address and Fritz Kreisler made his way to the man's house and as he did so, he knocked on the man's door. He said, and the man opened the door, he said, Mr. Kreisler, what brings you here today? He said, sir, you have something that I was hoping I could take a look at. And he ushered Mr. Kreisler in and had his servant bring him into the big parlor room where he had all these exquisite collections. This man was a great, wealthy man with much collections. And, and he looked over there and he said, sir, what I came to see about is about that violin. Oh yeah, that violin. I bought it from the dealer down over such and such place. And what a wonderful violin this is. And he says, I don't know much about playing it, but I do know much about collecting it. And the man said, this is a wonderful violin. And Mr. Chrysler said, well, sir, I've got all the money that, it, that I have money equal to what you paid for it. And then some, I would like to buy the violin from you. And he said, Mr. Chrysler, no. No, you can't have it. He said, sir, but please, I, I, you, you don't understand this violin like me. I said, he said, look at this wood here. I could tell you everything about the wood that you don't know about. And listen to the sound. Listen to the sound. You, I could tell you about things about the sound that you don't understand. He said, let me buy the violin. He said, no, sir, you can't have it. And Mr. Chrysler was devastated. He said, oh, he's not going to let me have the violin. What am I going to do? He said, I, I really want that violin. And Mr. Chrysler was about to make his way out. Then a thought came to his mind. He said, sir, you're not going to let me have the violin. Well, let me buy it. Could you at least let me... Do something very special for you. He said, what's that? And don't get nervous. I'm not going to play it. Amen. <laughs> don't get nervous. He said, would you let me play it for you? He said, are you going to charge me for it? I think he was Asian. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get it later. He said, no. He mounted it. He fooled with it for a second like musicians do. Mr. Christ started playing. Brother and sister in Christ, when I say he played a concert, he played a concert. And that room, just that collect that collector and Fritz Chrysler, he's playing that violin, playing that violin. 
Man, it was, it, just, it, was, it was just as beautiful as you can imagine. Servants were coming into that room. People were coming in. They were spellbound by the way Mr. Christ was playing that thing. Tears were coming to their eyes. They just couldn't believe the sounds were coming off that violin. And he played and he played and he played. And he got to the place where, that, where the, the piece he was playing was coming to the end of it. To the, he hit the crescendo wanted, the high point of it. And then he finished his piece. And as he did so, he put, his, put it down like this. And he bowed to the man and to the servants who were in the room. He said, sir, thank you for letting me play it. You may have back your violin. Watch this and I'm done. The collector said, with tears coming down his eyes, no. No, Mr. Chrysler. Take it. It's yours. Take it. It's yours. He says, I don't deserve to have that violin. Take it into all the world so that all the world may hear it. And I'm telling you this morning, God wants us to take the gospel of Jesus Christ so that all the world can hear it today. That's what he wants us to do. And finished mission. I wonder this morning as we close, Joshua chapter 4. Those stones. Let's look at the building next door. I'm done. Look at the building next door. All the stonework. What do those stones represent? They represent sacrifice. But they also represent a purpose. They represent the fact that building is not being built as a testimony to man. That building is being built so the gospel of Jesus Christ can be proclaimed. And just as that man told Fritz Kreiser, take it. Take it to all the world that the world may hear it. Would you just help me to take it around the corner so the neighbors around the corner can hear it? Would you help me take it to a city next door to us so the city next door can hear it? Would you help me take it so all 13 cities of Alameda County can hear it? Would some of you get enough faith and boldness to go with me to San Francisco and help us go to San Francisco so that all of San Francisco can hear it? I'm just saying this morning, what mean these stones? These stones still speak and these stones are still alive. They point to the fact we have a Savior who died for your sins and mine and He offers the gift of eternal life to whosoever shall call upon Him today. So we give the invitation today. I wonder if God's stirring your heart in this Memorial Day weekend to be an avid, fiery, zealous, active soul winner for Jesus Christ today. I wonder how many of us this morning need to be stirred in our heart to remember the Lord and His salvation. And remember the Lord and our stewardship. And remember the Lord and those who suffer. And remember the Lord and those who are His servants. This morning, I wonder if today you're even saved. Because all this is of no avail unless first you stand upon the rock which is Jesus Christ and accept Him as your Savior. And He becomes the chief cornerstone of your life. We invite you this morning. Don't delay. Don't sit there like a rock. Get out of your seat this morning and do something for the Lord. Father, this morning, thank you today. For Joshua chapter 4. What mean ye these stones? They came out of the riverbed to speak about Christ. Speak about your power and the mighty hand of God. And you concluded that section by saying that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Would you stir our hearts this morning?
be a gospel witness. Tell others about Christ. Invite people to the Lord. Help people get saved. Surrender our hearts and say, Lord, would you use me? Would you help me, Lord, to be an avid witness? On fire witness for Christ. Father, cross the room. Move us today. Help us not to sit like a rock, but be moved in our faith. Every head bowed and every eye closed. How many of you this morning would say, Pastor, I want God to stir my heart. In fact, God stirred my heart this morning. And I need to be a greater witness for Him. There are people God put in my mind and heart this morning that need to get saved, that all the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is mine. And you say today, pray for me this morning, that God will help me to be a more effective witness for Jesus Christ. How many raise your hand and say, pray for me this morning, that I'd be a greater witness. Surely more people are concerned about your loved ones than what went up. How many of you would say today, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved, but I need to get saved this morning. Pray for me today. I don't know if I'm saved. I'm not sure I'm going to heaven, but I want to know for sure. Would you pray for me? Anyone like that this morning? I'm not sure I'm saved, but I want to know this morning. In a moment, we're going to give you an invitation. What mean these stones? The stones were not meant to just sit there. The stones are meant to move us in our conscience and move us in our faith. Move out of your seat. Find your place. Ask God for His power. Ask God to then make Himself stronger. There's some things that God may be stimulating your thoughts today. Let Him move on you today. Make a decision for Christ. Father, today, thank You for what the Scriptures declare. We give You this invitation that the mighty hand of the Lord might be evident in our lives. Lord, help us let go of our unbelief, and whatever other excuses we have, and let the Lord lead us now. We commit this invitation to you in Jesus' name. Let's stand. As you stand, if God's impressed you, you make your way to the aisle this morning. Find an altar worker. Take them by the hand. Says, I need to get saved. Would you pray for me? Whatever it might be. Did the Lord stir you about your stewardship? Lord, stir you about being a member. Listen, you have to be, as a member, one of the privileges of membership is taking the Lord's table. The Lord stir you about that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Don't you feel bothered that people need to get saved? Don't you feel stirred in your conscience you need to do something for the Lord? Don't you feel like it's not impossible that you can't get across the other side? The Lord wants to help you get across the other side. Would you go there with Him? Follow the Lord. Let God make a way where there is no way. Would you come? We're going to sing another stanza. Come. Don't, don't delay this morning. If you're not sure you're saved and you're feeling your heart beat very fast, it might be the Holy Spirit speaking to you. You need to get saved this morning. We invite you today. Would you come forward with humility and say, Help me. I need to know how to be saved today. Would you come this morning? Father, across the room this morning, there's a mission. There's a memorial. We need a miracle, Lord. Lord, we need revival in our hearts. We need you, Lord, to help us get across the other side. We need to trust the unfailing presence, the unfailing performance of God to get us over on the other side. Father, stir our hearts today. Help us not to get out of our mind. Just as, Lord, those stones were always a reminder, God helped them to get across here. But it wasn't just to cross the Jordan. It was to conquer city by city and to give those cities an opportunity one more time to put their faith and trust in Christ, to forsake their pagan ways and their heathen worship and, and trust in the living God. Father, thank you that you are the living God and that folks can still trust you today and be saved. Help us today, Lord. There are many who have struggles in their faith and their, and, and their walk with you. Help them today to find power and help from you. We'll thank you for this, Lord, today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you for being here this morning. I'm going to ask Brother Irwin to close us in prayer for just a moment. Do we have a, do we have a video today?
Is there a video? Brother, Brother, Brother Vaughn, is there a video today? I don't think there's a video. Just tell you tonight, come to church tonight, amen? Whatever announcement, just be at church tonight. We'll have a, we'll have a great time in the service tonight. Great Bible study we have planned for tonight. I want you there for that. And I want you to have a safe Memorial Day tomorrow. Brother, and come lead us in closing prayer. My wife and I will be at the door to shake your hand and greet you. If you're a visitor guest, we hope we get a chance to meet you as you make your way out. God bless you, brother.